Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. And my guest today is the poet, novelist, teacher, critic, all manner of goblinry, Amal El Mokhtar. Amal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you really do do an awful lot of things. Um, but I think you are the first actual, like, proper poet that I've had on the show. Um, uh-huh. So that's going to be interesting. So there's no point in me doing this intro. You, please, tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so, gosh, it, it is. it does get a bit uh, a bit bewildering sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> to know, it's funny, too, though, uh, to, hear, to hear the list enumerated that way, because um, I think for me, a lot of those things all feed into each other. So there's a workshop that I teach, uh, just to rattle them off, um, about using poetry to write prose. Uh, so there's, you know, like all of these things, they're not discrete boxes in my head, if that makes sense. So, I mean, to say who I am, though, let's see. So my name is Amal Al-Mahdar. Uh, I, uh, I'm the one of the authors of This Is How You Lose the Time War, which is a novella that I co-wrote with Max Gladstone um, that came out last year. It is. It has been optioned for television, and Max and I were hired to write the script. So I am also, as of quite recently, writing a screenplay. Also a screenwriter, yep. <laughs> a screenwriter, yes. It, it's actually an amazing process. I, I can't wait to talk more about that. Um, I do. I write um, poetry. Was was probably the first thing that I started writing uh, when I was like seven. Uh, so, and the idea of like poet as an identity is kind of a big like a very formative one for me. Um, I edited a poetry journal called Goblin Fruit for uh, close to 10 years, I think, uh, before having to put it on hiatus. And um, what else? What else is there? I, te- I write short fiction primarily. Um, that's that I think up until Time War uh, was mostly what I was known for. I had a short story called Seasons of Glass and Iron that uh, won the uh, Hugo, Nebula and Locus Awards in 2017. And uh, yeah, I think that's roughly it. Oh, <laughs> Time War. Time War is um, in, enjoying a, a lot of uh, a lot of kindness right now. It's been nominated for a Nebula and uh, uh, the LA Time Book Prize's inaugural uh, Ray Bradbury Award. Uh, so it, in, in truly astonishing company. And uh, we're recording this obviously a bit in advance. So by the time this episode goes live, the results of one or more of those may actually be out. So uh, Oh my goodness. Ah. Yeah. Don't, even, don't, don't think about it. Don't think no. about it. <laughs> this is how you lose the time war. Oh no. Yes. So I want to start then with, you mentioned that you teach a class about using poetry to write prose. And one of the most common uh, things people say about your work and one of the most common sort of praises that people give to it uh, it, about Seasons of Glass and Iron really was, I think was the first one where people really started to say this about you. And it was really compounded with this is how you lose the time war. And that is that your prose is very poetic, that it is, you have a very poetic turn of phrase and people who maybe don't realise that you started as a poet, you know, sort of to them it might seem a bit odd, especially in genre fiction, which obviously historically was not known for its wonderful turns of phrase. So just sort of, I mean, how did you start? I assume you started writing poetry with no thought to being published, but just 
you know, something to do to get it out of your head. <laughs> I actually uh, started writing poetry sort of under the auspices, not of getting published, but of uh, changing the world. <laughs> and, of course, uh, like all good poets, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Speaking truth to power. And, uh, you know, was, so basically, um, when I was seven years old, uh, I was living in Beirut at the time. Um, I was a, so I was born in Canada um, and like we, we moved to Lebanon for two years when I was little. So it was, you know, a, a huge change from what I was used to um, on the one hand. And then all of these things that are still very important to me uh, kind of happened in that year. One of them was uh, reading Doctor Who novelizations. <laughs> one of them was uh, being introduced to poetry as a thing that didn't just exist in books, but that you know, I could also write. And I think basically we'd been given some kind of assignment in school to write a poem. Uh, and I ended up um, writing a poem, not, not actually to fulfill the assignment, uh, which I think I was probably late on also beginning a lifelong tradition of being late for things, uh, but whatever. Um, so I wrote this poem to the moon, uh, which I still remember and recited it to my parents. Uh, and they, you know, instead of just indulging their, their seven year olds who'd written a very silly poem, uh, praised me with great praise. And furthermore told me that my grandfather, um, had been a poet and that this was, you know, sort of synonymous with him being also a revolutionary. And uh, that I became aware while I was in Lebanon that when people learned my surname, they, like people who were strangers, like people in shops and things, um, would uh, would ask me what my relation was to Ajaj uh, al-Muhtar. And I'd say he was my grandfather. And they would say, he was a very good poet. And it was this kind of remarkable thing uh, to, to realize that everyone sort of knew my grandfather. Wow. Um, and as it, like, you know, the, the way that, um, that these things happen in childhood, like I was, it felt like I was being given this, this torch, you know, of like, you have written a poem and therefore you are walking in your grandfather's footsteps. And this is a very important thing to be a poet. Um, and even, even at that age, I was aware that there was some association of, poetry and my grandfather with um with hardship and with like he was uh, imprisoned for his politics for a number of years um he was part of uh, an attempt to uh, <laughs> overthrow the sectarian government uh, and institute secular government there's a whole thing but um there was this sense that poetry was um, vital and alive and powerful and that it, there was an enormous responsibility inherent in being a poet. So it felt, it felt like something to kind of, you know, draw myself up to a height within even at seven. And, um, and, you know, like you know, at seven, you're, you're totally up for quests and uh, adventures and things like that. And so poetry was sort of sorted into that category. Um, at the same time, the same year of, you know, great formative things, um, I read The Hobbit for the first time. And there were poems in The Hobbit, which I, unlike 
90% of people who read The Hobbit uh, did not skip over. I, I read them <laughs> with great attention. Um, they were they were actually absolutely my favorite parts of the book. Anything that was italicized in that book, I could learn by heart. It was it seemed like it was demarcated specifically in order to make me pay more attention to it. So I dutifully did pay more attention to it. Um, and I like made up tunes for the songs and um, memorized the riddles, which also seemed like poetry and stuff like that. So, um, so like, I think I managed to sidestep this idea, which is very prevalent in, in sort of the Western Anglosphere, uh, that poetry is boring or an antiquated or irrelevant to modern concerns. And instead, uh, grew up with the sense that, um, poetry was, not only alive and well, but powerful and um, sort of threatening in some ways. It was like it was literally like magic, you know. It was like associated with um, with power, that sort of thing. It's the idea that art can be revolutionary, isn't it? Which, as you say, has kind of been lost a little in the West. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when this is the other reason why, like, when I say everything is connected, you know, um, it's because to me, poetry was was deeply connected to fantasy as well, which is, you know, my my chosen um, my chosen mode of writing. Most often is fantasy and science fiction, or the fantastical. Um, so poetry and fantasy feel very much of a piece to me. Um, and poetry and revolution feel very much of a piece to me, and poetry and education feel very much of a piece to me because uh, it, it's it's it grieves me uh, to see children in the West kind of introduced to poetry as this kind of you know reliquary, you know, just like these dry bones rattling in a box that you have to keep teaching the same six dead white guys uh, <laughs> forever. And I say this. Incidentally, as like a scholar of romanticism, I, I extremely love the poetry of those six dead white guys, um, not counting Wordsworth. I like some Wordsworth poems. I just don't like the famous ones. But but there should be more is what you're saying. But there should be more. There should be so much more. I mean, if you're going to teach the stuff that is, you know, uh, 200 years old, you should also be teaching the stuff that is of the moment. You know, let, let kids realize that rap is poetry. You know, let kids realize that, um, that, that there is just, there's so much poetry that doesn't involve just kind of standing awkwardly and making stultified rhymes happen in a way that is alienating and unengaging, you know? So all of those things feel, feel very connected to me. Um, and when it comes to talking to uh, writers of prose fiction about poetry uh, and specifically in the context of that workshop, talking about, you know, using, using poetry to write prose, um, Sometimes, depending on the crowd, uh, not I don't always need to do this, but a lot of the time I need to do this. I need to op- I need to start the workshop by giving people the hard sell on poetry, you know, to kind of um, pick away at these ideas that that poetry has to be difficult, impenetrable, opaque, alienating, um, instead of exciting and, and vital and valid, essentially. Um, so. Uh, I also like use it to, uh, there's an exercise part that's part of the, the poetry and prose workshop that involves, um, involves using a poem to try and kind of, uh, activate a, a sort of latent part of the brain, um, that, that, uh, I use, uh, Shwetanarayan's term and, and called night brain. There's like day brain and night brain. And the day brain is like the, the prose fiction brain and the night brain is kind of the poetry brain. Um, and, uh, to try and kind of infuse prose, uh, with, more of those night brain tendencies. Um, 
and it's delightful. Like the things that, um, by and large, like the the things that happen when when people do this and they take this workshop is that they are sort of extremely surprised by what they write in a way that delights and um, sometimes shocks them. Like they they can recognize that the thing that they have done is written something that looks like poetry, even though they don't think of themselves as poets. But there is a, a really qualitative difference uh, to the way that they're writing in the wake of this exercise uh, for at least like the length of the exercise and stuff. And I've been very gratified to have people write to me and say that they've continued to use it and stuff like that. So it's, um, it's, it's really great. But yeah, I, one of the main things that I try to say in the workshop or two things really, that the difference between poetry and prose is the difference between singing and speaking Um, that they, you kind of literally locate the activities in different parts of the brain, but that they have a lot in common, nevertheless. And that I think uh, I, I try to argue that they're also um, related modalities with different emphases. So uh, instead of seeing them as opposites, instead of seeing them as mutually exclusive, I try to get people to recognize that a lot of the things that you think of as only things that are in poetry are also in prose. Uh, things that are like as simple as line breaks, you know, oh, you need line breaks for a poem. Well, what? why do you end a paragraph why, where you end it? You know, what? why do you break a scene where you end it? It's the same function. It's the same thing. Um, you've decided to introduce an artificial break in someone's reading experience. And, you know, you have lots of different reasons for doing that. Um, and people will reach for things as well, like, uh, oh, features of a poem are, well, metaphor, uh, well, elision, well, you know, all these other things. And I just kind of point by point, with the exception of rhyme, I guess, is the one thing, we'll usually point to them in um, in prose and say, well, all of these things that you seem to be reaching for as exclusive characteristics of poetry are very much present in prose as well. And yet you you might not even think of the prose that uses these this toolkit um, as poetic per se. Well, I think there's, I think what happens when people read that if they're not consciously thinking about poetry is they just think, oh, that's really good writing. Mm-hmm. And it takes somebody, as you say, to specifically point out to them, no, th- this is, you know, this language is rooted in poetry, as you say, things like metaphor and stuff, uh, to make them realise that. And I think... Going back to what you were saying about the the day brain, night brain, and this exercise that you do, I've often wondered how much because I, I'm a fairly, I mean, you know, people have read my stuff. It's fairly uh, utilitarian, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, in you know, for the most of it, I am writing things, and I'm using formatting as a for, as part of the storytelling, as you said, with things like you know, short paragraphs or short sentences right. and breaks and what have you but i'm generally writing stuff that is designed to you know excite and get people reading quickly and you know thrillers and that sort of thing but i do like to throw in a nice metaphor or a bit of poetic license here and there just you know often in contemplative moments and stuff just to keep people on their toes <laughs> if you like absolutely i sometimes wonder if the reluctance to do that for a lot of people, is a fear of... We have this notion so often that anything that isn't purely functional is worthy of mockery, you know, is kind of... is lesser and is... you're just being silly and childish and all this sort of... And I think there is a fear of mockery Mm -hmm. on some people's part, you know, and they don't want to go there because they're afraid 
the other more yeah you know utilitarian minded people will read it and go well that's just silly or ridiculous or you know it's a reflexive well i'm not going to do it because it will open me up to to mockery and that's a real fear i think for a lot of writers but i i think it's worth you know it's one that's worth trying to break through I absolutely agree with all of that. And I think that this is a huge part of why the comparison for me of poetry and singing is so apt, because to sing is also to make yourself tremendously vulnerable, right? True. Yeah. Um, people, like, I mean, people, there, there are people who will not sing because of exactly this thing of, you know, fearing ridicule. Um and there are people who look at people who do sing and see them as, um, you know, as, as doing something tremendously aberrant. You know, um, this is something else that I, I like to talk about is like there's the, you know, when you, you think of when you think of something like uh, uh, a musical. Right. And the um, or, or how, how some people kind of make these are two related things. Some people make a kind of fashion <laughs> or like personality out of hating musical theater um you know they just kind of decide like oh yeah whatever uh, the stuff is so and I, I really feel like when people do that what they are telling on themselves essentially is that they are terrified of earnestness um and terrified mm. of vulnerability and intimacy uh and I, and I, I sympathize with that terror um the thing is that there is there is a kind of requirement i think in in writing poetry or in kind of drawing on uh, the toolkits of poetry that involves uh, involves making yourself vulnerable, even when you're not writing autobiographically, even when you're, you're not like, te- you're not actually revealing yourself necessarily. No, but the, the mere act of writing in that way, I think yes. for a lot of people has that fear of they are exposing themselves, which absolutely yeah. maybe they are in a sense, even if it's not, as you say, autobiographical. I mean, ostensibly any art involves this as well, but poetry, unlike other forms of art, has that overlap with speech, with the way that we communicate. Uh, And I think that that closeness means that we are making ourselves vulnerable in ways that are more, more immediately accessible and visible to everyone else. Um, but what it's funny where time war is concerned, um, it, it's been absolutely astonishing to me to, to see people say of it positively. This is, this is so poetic. This is so beautiful. Like I, um, I think I, I often, I think I, I'm, I've just kind of expected on some level that when people say that something is poetic, that they uh, sort of mean it as, as a pejorative. Yeah. Yeah. Or that they found it difficult or that they found it opaque. And instead, like to see people talking about it as one of the things that they loved about the book has been really interesting. But um, the other thing that I find interesting is that the way that people talk about the prose in that book is really like some people are very, very passionate about talking about how beautiful they find the prose. And other people are kind of apologetic as they talk about it and say, I mean, you know, the prose does veer kind of purple in places. And I'm I'm fascinated by this. Like I I really want to know for some people, does like the quote unquote purple prose literally just mean prose that is stylized or prose that draws attention to itself, right? Um because to think of something that is utilitarian, I mean, you know, um, 
Dashiell Hammett and and Raymond Chandler surely like write some of the most uh I mean in in writing like noir detective fiction, right? Um they have there's this idea this kind of like masculinist idea of of right, well this is just the words on the page. Pure functionality like, yeah. But their their prose is gorgeous. Oh, like yeah, they, no, it's, <laughs> it's not at all, yeah. 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 The the most famous I mean, I'm, it is Chandler, right, who says he had a gun, I took it from him. Like that is poetry, you know. That is absolutely the. I mean, it's it's elision. You've absolutely elided like a whole storm of action and and reduced it to this beautiful capsule of um, of character of like just just it's. I mean, sure, it's functional in the sense that you have conveyed an action in a very simple and clear way, but the compression involved in doing that. Uh, is enormous. Like it's it's practically geologic, you know. Um, that is like carbon to diamond, and, right? And the gap that it leads in the that it leaves in the reader's imagination. It's like the in comics we talk about the gutter, yes, the space between the panels, and how that's where the story happens, mm-hmm. really, because you can see the panels, but you can't see what happens between the panels in the gutters. And so much can happen there. You put two contrasting images next to one another and everyone will insert their own story into the gutter it's the same with that sentence it's the same with and uh, i wish i could remember his name but there was a i believe french filmmaker uh who did that experiment where he took uh different images of like a man plaintively looking at the camera and a bowl of soup and a dog and things like that and just put them all together edited them all together completely nonsensical showed them to people and asked them what the film was about. And everybody had a different story. Everybody right. came up with a different answer because they were reading these images through their own lens and their own imagination and their own interpretations. Absolutely. And that's what good prose can do. It's what good storytelling can do in any medium. But in this case, it's what good prose can do by leaving things out. As you say, he had a gun. I took it from him. How? What happened there <laughs> exactly? And we get to the answer of that through our own process our own imagination what we think we know of the character it's it's brilliant exactly there are all these different ways that you can bring it in when it is just those two sentences and we are we are creatures who are sort of hardwired for narrative and so you show us like a, a, a whole sequence of um wacky totally unconnected images and we will look for patterns and we will sort of try to make a story out of them um, there's another exercise that I do with my students, which isn't actually to do with poetry at all, but just um, in order to talk about, in order, in order to show the relationships between character and plot, um, I get the, I get them to fill out a, a very simple template to make out to make up a character, uh, and it's basically you know uh, give them a name, a gender if applicable, um, five wants, five fears. Uh, seven character traits and one problem and one secret. Um, and uh, so, like, they'll make up a character with all of these things, um, and you know, they'll have made up a coherent character that they've spent some time putting together. And then I put that template up on the board, and I ask, you know, one person, okay, give me your character's name, and the other person, okay, give me your character's. Uh, first desire and kind of go around the room essentially crowdsourcing from all of their characters so you make a composite character yeah a composite nonsensical wacky uh often very contradictory 
character um, from all of their answers. And it's and the the point of the exercise is to then find, besides the fact that it's hilarious uh, and and very engaging, um, the point of it is to look for places of contradiction and figure out how to resolve them with plot. So um, there was one time there was the, the the main the character was a spider that was simultaneously invisible and had purple hair. Um, was Adrian Tchaikovsky amongst your students? <laughs> I have nothing to teach Adrian Tchaikovsky. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in addition to that, they had um, this character was a botanist living in Antarctica 5,000 years in the future. And I, I loved this because so it was like, okay, well, how, how do we reconcile these things? What is a botanist doing in Antarctica? And we thought, okay, well, what if 5,000 years in the future, Antarctica is actually a garden paradise? I mean, doesn't that mean, and suddenly you kind of start building out um, some world building, some setting uh, characteristics as a, as a consequence. Um, there are, so all of these, these facets essentially are just to kind of get they get the students out of their own heads in terms of trying to invent something and instead start looking at um, problems to solve uh, in order to kind of make something coherent come together out of this mishmash of totally contradictory things. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. Well, and that's what most fiction writing is, isn't it? Is, yeah. you know, once you start getting into the actual writing of it, once you start outlining and, uh, indeed start laying down the words it does become an exercise in problem solving a lot of the time how do i get this character from a to b how do i resolve as you said you know a fear with a a want and a secret and all that sort of thing how do i tie all these things together how do i make the antagonist and protagonist connected in a satisfying way all of these things are problems that we solve as fiction writers now you might, I could see you making an argument that you don't, in poetry, you don't necessarily have to solve those things. Whereas in fiction, unless you're writing surrealism, they are kind of expected. But one of the things I loved, hang on before you go off. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I loved, I know that was going to offend you. One of the things I loved about how this is how you lose the time war is that it did have a plot, a good plot, you know, it did solve all those problems. It was coherent. It did have connection in amongst all of the beautiful and yes, purple and sometimes a little bit obscure, I'm sure deliberately prose, <laughs> you know, the, the prose, what there were places where I was like, I'm not entirely sure what's happening there, but it sounds wonderful. <laughs> I have definitely seen, these are, these are genuinely some of my, my favorite, uh, reviews of the book. Cause sometimes like, uh, they, you know, they come to my attention whether I want them or not sometimes, but, uh, but people who say, I didn't understand anything that happened, but I really love it. And I'm just <laughs> like, That's, I don't know. It makes me really happy. <laughs> like, great. We did something right. Um, no, I wasn't offended by anything that you said. I only wanted to, um, to flag up the fact that this is another, another symptom of, of the way poetry gets taught, right. Uh, in, in, in ways that I think are really insufficient and unfortunate. Um, is that we have this idea of when we say poetry, what most people mean is uh, something 
lyrical and abstract and probably introspective that is beautiful that you have to work hard to understand um but that hopefully is uh revelatory and illuminating right generally a mood piece a sort of non-narrative mood piece is what most people think of isn't it yeah Right. Something, but the thing is, like, poetry has been narrative for much longer than it hasn't. I mean, the, the poetry is so much older than prose for conveying fiction. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, like, we just, I mean, don't, you don't even have to think about, like, the Odyssey and stuff like that. Um, but just uh, even much more recently, I mean, the, the novel is a very recent technology. You know, we're talking about, uh, at least in, in English, uh, a, a very recent technology. Um, domestic realism is a very recent technology, uh, for that matter. I'm, I'm very... I think just naturalism in general is very recent, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, this is when I say, like, you know, poetry and fantasy are sort of where I feel... I'm at my... Mo- is like where my, my native storytelling comes from. Um, is the fact that those things were, were not separate from each other. Um uh, for uh, for a long time, you know, so there's so much narrative poetry um, that it, so I mean there absolutely are like this like huge traditions of poetry that has plots, uh, poetry that tells stories, um, and and this isn't without necessarily even getting into music and ballads and things like that. I, I regard myself actually as fairly fortunate in that, and I have no idea if this is still the case, uh, but when I was in high school, part of the curriculum was we did both uh, the Divine Comedy and Paradise Lost in our English classes, which obviously are two huge narrative poems. Yes. Let's get away from the philosophy for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. This is supposed to be like a really hands-on No, 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 but it's great. Like I say, you're the first first poet I've had on the show, so it's great talking about this stuff. But yeah, let's get a bit more sort of nuts and bolts. Uh, And this really, again, relates to the fact that you know, you are this, uh, well, you do a lot of different things, but, you know, poetry is one of your things along with, as you say, lots of short stories and stuff. What are your, what's a typical day like for you? How do you, how disciplined are you about sort of sitting down and banging away at the keyboard? Well, the fact that I am doing so many different things right now um, has meant that... It means you have to be, I assume. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, the problem is I am, I mean, so here's the thing. I think that in the interest of full disclosure, I'm I'm hoping that it will be as valuable to your listeners, uh, to know that, um, that, that some working writers are also disasters and I am frequently a disaster, um, in that I am frequently overwhelmed by the fact that I am simultaneously um, writing nonfiction for the New York Times and NPR, uh, teaching a full course load, um, being the creative writing coordinator at the University of Ottawa, finishing my dissertation um, somewhere in there for my PhD, and then <laughs> within all of those, trying to continue to write fiction. Um, so it is really tricky the thing that has uh, and the thing is that because of um because of time war essentially and be, because of, i mean I'm, I'm tremendously grateful for this and knock on wood it's it's been doing very well um because of the tv option on it uh that has been 
what Max and I have been focusing on together. And in order to work on that, in order to um, in order to keep that on track, we have had to find both a methodology uh, for working on it regularly and effectively, uh, and and to like work backwards uh, essentially from from that. It was we we went through a period with um, with drafting the pilot because we have now we we've turned in a first draft of it, but the first draft draft that we've turned in of this pilot is actually our second draft. Oh sure, that, I mean that's perfectly normal. Exactly. Yeah. So I was finding it really really difficult to adapt this book that Max and I wrote enormously together. Like the the collaboration literally involved us being in the same space at the same time. Oh, so you were in the same room writing that book? We were in a gazebo, in fact. Right. But that's unusual. A lot of co-writers, you know, do everything remotely these days. And we've had to figure out how to do that. And it's been working really well since we figured out that that, that was a thing that was needed. So when we wrote this book together, um, we were it it was it was like this this fusion space of um things that Max is good at, meeting things that I'm good at, and the things that we were both slightly less practiced at kind of um grew in in that space of us together. And it really felt like the thing that we made was kind of more than the sum of either of our parts in in writing. Um, so trying to find that energy again, while uh, Max is a new father for one thing, and um, and also you know is is writing novels quite a lot and stuff, uh, while I'm doing all of those other things, has been really tricky. So our initial draft um, involved each of us writing separate parts separately from each other. And what we ended up with just like it, it was a necessary start, but it just didn't feel good. It didn't it, it didn't feel like our show. It felt like a show that we were trying to. It felt like us trying to do other people's shows, essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, what we ended up doing was was carving it, like finding literally tiny two hour gaps in our respective schedules. Um, that we could hit three times a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, whatever interstices that we had in our work days that we felt we could, you know, turn away from other work in order to just work on this together. Um, we, we found, and then the second draft was like, I cannot even begin to say how much better because we were actually working together at the same time using the collaboration function in uh, final draft. And oh, yeah. j- and just uh, like having having access to each other as we were doing this, like having the work that we were doing appear simultaneously on the screen so that we could feel like we were bouncing off of each other a little bit again, all of that um, made it so much easier. Do you think that was also made easier by the fact that you had already written the book itself together and that you'd done that in the same space? So you, because I often find... I have a lot of friends that I made online that I only know online, but I always find when I meet somebody, especially if I have known them online previously, when I've met somebody in the flesh, online interactions then become easier because you have some kind of context for their tone of voice, their body language, you know, just taking what they say in the way that they mean it. It's much easier to judge tone, I find, once I've met somebody in person. 
So do you, did you find that having worked together in person, collaborating on the book, made it easier to collaborate remotely? I th- you know, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it, I think it did and it didn't in the sense that, um, it did in that I think we both had a sense of what it feels like when it's working, like when that the, there was this, this energy that we wanted to access again. Um, and, and having this kind of ideal in mind of, of what we produce when we are feeling this energy, essentially. So that when we are working remotely, the absence of that was really stark. And I think, so essentially, I think that like, at first, the fact that it wasn't working um, from us working remotely, because we, there were, there were several factors that weren't, that just weren't there for the, for us to work the way that we did on the book. Um, It made us seek out what would make it work the way that it was, you know, now that we, we have no access to, uh, you know, two and a half weeks of free time and a gazebo, how are we still <laughs> going to reach, um, that, that level? Cause it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we, we could, we could totally have turned in that first draft, you know, I think it was adequate. We could even have revised it from the shape that it was, and it would have probably been fine, but it, it wasn't, Good enough. Fine is not what you were aiming for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't what we were aiming for specifically because we had the memory of the experience of the book and we had the book, you know, like we had the book to kind of reproach us and be like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, and while totally recognizing that the, um, the, the pilot has to be a transformation and adaptation of the book, a lot of the, um, a lot of looking for that, uh, adaptation, like, uh, a lot of the impetus for adaptation sometimes comes from a throwaway line in the book where we go, like you were trying to solve a problem. That's an adaptation problem. And we end up going, Hey, we, we, but we wrote this thing in the book. What if we like used that and, and expanded that, you know? Um, and it, it, so it's been really delightful in that sense. Um, but, but like the, in terms of my, my own general practice, um, I, have tended to uh not have that like i i really need more of it like i recognizing that how amazingly fruitful it's been to have this absolutely carved out sacrosanct time sometimes in the middle of my other work days uh to just to just work with max has been so good for me in so many ways and i have known for a long time that this is the way that i will work best to have actually you know, this, um, this carved out time. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's really driven that home for me now anyway, because, um, uh, so much, so much of, uh, this, this current moment in my life where just so many things are happening at the same time, um, has definitely made it really hard to not conflate importance with urgency. Uh, I can't remember who is, is the, the guy who wrote getting things done, I think is, uh, the, David Allen. That's the one. Yeah. He makes this distinction between tasks that are important and tasks that are urgent and kind of compares it to trying to, uh, rescue a hostage from a tower, um, as the important task, but the dealing with like the stormtroopers down below with their guns is the urgent task. But if you get too bogged down trying to fight the stormtroopers, then you're never going to rescue the hostage, which is actually the important thing. And 
I've definitely been been feeling that uh, in my life where I feel like everything is urgent all the time and it's very difficult to just get through the matters of urgency in order to, for instance, write my own novel, which is yeah. a thing that um, has it's been... important. Oh, so important. So important. Increasingly important with every passing day. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Is that because... Are you under contract? <laughs> no, I'm not, oh, in okay. fact. I mean, no, it's more... I thought maybe you meant there was an editor uh, tapping their watch, you know. <laughs> no, it's really... Bless. It's really my agent. He's <laughs> like, you know, Mal, now would be a really great time uh, for us to sell <laughs> a novel from you and stuff. Um, and uh, and just kind of, it's it's really more that. It's and my agent is actually literally the best. Um, Dong Wan Song is is really like one of the best humans. It's been my privilege to uh, interact with, and he has like I, I credit him with so much that has gone well in my life so um anyway point is this is no shade on on him at all it is just i am aware that there are certain variables like for instance the success of of one's uh novella that make it a really good time to approach the market with a novel ideally before the world collapses beneath a global pandemic (laughs) so i want to just uh quickly go back to what you said about adaptations and Mm. something that because i've done a I've done a fair few adaptations on kind of both sides of the fence. You know, my stuff's been adapted and I've also written adaptations of other people's work. And I've also written adaptations of my own work um, <laughs> in forms that nobody will probably ever see because the producers don't seem to want to do anything with the script. But hey, there you go. I think one of the important things to remember when writing an adaptation is remember why people wanted to make the adaptation in the first place. Remember what it was about the original work that made people go, do you know what? We should film this or turn it into a graphic novel or turn a graphic novel into a novel or, you know, whatever form they want to turn it into. Look at the original and go, why? What was it about that that made you want to adapt it? And I think a really good instructive example of this was Watchmen. Huh. Because the, the Watchmen film did not do that. No. You know, you can argue whether or not the film was a success and whether or not it, you know, made the right choice to kind of satirize movie heroes rather than comic book heroes, whatever. But it forgot why it loved the comic. Mm. Uh, whereas the TV series that was recently <sighs> on absolutely oh remembered. What was it about this comic that we all loved? Oh, it was that. Let's do that. Let's make sure that that is in the adaptation that we make. I mean, it's not even really an adaptation, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you know, I, 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 I love this advice. I'd never thought of it that way. I think that's a really beautiful way to put it, that remember what it was that made you want to adapt it in the first place, specifically because, it, I mean, you can read that on a few different levels. You can talk about, you know, the thing, the thing that you felt that made you want to adapt it. Right. It's not necessarily a specific plot or something. It could literally be the feeling that it gave you when you read it. Right. And I think, but I think that that's valuable for sort of two different groups of people. Like if, if your, if, if your primary medium for art, you know, is, is comics, for instance, um, and you read a book that, that just delights you so much that it, it moves you to say, I really want to adapt this. Um, 
I imagine that there is an aspect of that where like the love that you feel is sort of making you respond to it with your art of choice, with the toolkit that you have at your disposal. Right. But there's the other way of reading it is to say like, well, you know, to, to, for me, like the actual kind of more nitty gritty craft based thing of, um, uh, of an adaptation is if the thing that made you want to adapt it was this astonishing visual that happened in your head that made you want to, you know, do something else or, or whatever, then like that is a fantastic impetus. And with the, with the Watchmen TV show, cause I, my God, I was so affected by the TV show. Um, I'm, I'm actually literally going to screen an episode from it. I'm, I'm teaching a comics course right now as well. Um, and, uh, I, you know, appreciation of comics, not creating comics because I have no skill. Um, but, uh, I certainly have enthusiasm. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm screening it for this class, um, in order to talk about adaptation and stuff, because to me, like the, the core astonishing thing in that adaptation is Damon Lindelof looking at Hooded Justice and saying, why would he wear a noose around his neck? Oh, because of lynching. Oh, because he's black. You know, like that absolutely transforms the story. That like absolutely, I'm sorry if that's like spoilers for Watchmen, the TV <laughs> show. Uh, um, but it's, uh, it, I mean, that suddenly, like it, it breaks the story open in this enormous, astonishing way. Uh, and suddenly, you know, by breaking it open makes room for things like investigating the, the Tulsa race massacre and talking about that on, um, on on television in a way that I, I still can't believe that this has happened. I'm very glad it has happened, but I'm just sort of shaking my head at the fact that it's happened in a way that is actually making people not only aware of the Tulsa race massacre, but also forcing it to be on curricula in a way that it wasn't before. Um, like places that did not teach it are now going to teach it because of this TV show, you know, like it, it, this TV show that came out partly of Damon Lindelof reading Ta-Nehisi Coates's Case for Reparations, learning about the Tulsa Race Massacre for the first time from him and then thinking and then connecting it to to Watchmen, you know, like it's I don't know, it's just this um, an amazing sequence of things that all kind of comes out of wanting to adapt something from these moments of like wonder or shock or recognition uh that i think is really cool well i think it's also instructive in the and this is the other part of what i always used to say about comics because i I, you know having worked in comics for almost 20 years i came across a lot of people who were trying to make a comic in order to sell the film option Um, and I won't name any names, but you know, it still goes on now, but not so much now, but there was a period in the kind of around the 2010s when there was a lot of that going on and it almost invariably they, they weren't, you know, it it didn't work. And that's because they weren't great comics. Uh, and I I think that, you know, the, the fact that their comics is immaterial, the formats immaterial, the point is that you must focus on making the best thing you can in the format in which you're working and the medium in which you're working and not think about, oh, this might get adapted, not have those kind of thoughts. And I think that goes equally for adaptations, you know, on both sides of the fence, you've got to look at the medium in which you're working and say, okay, what can I do in this medium to tell the best story 
whether it's an original or an adaptation or whatever. Um, and that's the responsibility of the adapter, but also of the original creator. I think it's it's crucial that you have that in mind and not... I'm not going to say don't compromise, because we all compromise with ourselves right. and with editors and publishers and producers and what have you in some way. Uh, and, you know, you've got that yet to come over all <laughs> your many many future drafts to come of your screenplay, I'm sure. Indeed. Um, you know, that that's going to happen. But when you are sitting, when it's just you and the keyboard, when you're sitting there writing and there's nobody looking over your shoulder, your responsibility is to make it the best it can be in the medium in which you're working. And that's, that's how I sleep at night. You know, I yes. firmly, firmly believe in that. That's absolutely true. I also, talking of, of, of screenplay adaptation, there's the thing that I've had to, uh, as someone coming to screenwriting, it's a necessary recognition that dialogue and description are serving enormously different functions than they are yes. in writing um, in, in writing a novel or writing uh, any kind of other prose fiction. And the but the the difference is an inversion. Like essentially, when you're writing when you're writing prose fiction, there is the sense that what you're putting on the page is going to kind of bloom in some in a reader's brain in a in a unique and unrepeatable way right like you are you have you have written this thing that is like a seed being cast into the soil of the reader's brain and depending on what that soil is it will either bloom or not you know it will either be suited to it or won't be suited to it or what have you there's a lot of variety it's fine um so you kind of recognize that that variance is going to be there. When you're writing a screenplay, you have to try and make appear in the heads of dozens of different people working in dozens of different fields, the same image. Like you have to be able to make your costumer and your set designer and your director and the actors and like all of these people who are going to work together have to understand the thing that you have written in a way that like has all of them on as it were the same page and and that's a fascinating inversion to me see i'm not sure i agree with that i really? think yeah i think there was something in there you you said one of the ways in which you described it was that everybody has to understand mm. what you're writing and i think that's absolutely true everybody what you do in a screenplay has to be understood by everybody that writes it but I don't think everybody has to see the same thing because that's why all those different departments exist. That's why you have a costume designer and a set dresser yes, and right. a production designer and a director and a director of photography and all those different people. And they bring, like we talked about right at the start, their own perceptions, their own lens to, you know, to, to confuse matters with a metaphor. Um, <laughs> they they bring their own ideas to it and they will all see it differently and they will all imagine it differently. But that's kind of the point of making a film or a TV show rather than writing a novel is that you are inviting all of these other creative people to add their interpretation to your interpretation, which is in your head, but mm -hmm. not necessarily on the page because what's on the page must be sparse. So this is actually, I, I think I'm actually trying to say the thing that you're saying in a slightly different way, which is just okay. to say that, like, the, it doesn't, what I mean by, like, the same image, essentially, is is not to say that, I mean, you have to sort of communicate to a costume designer 
the thing that you want without actually knowing costume design, right? Well, and without specifically telling them the thing that you want, because it's their job to interpret, you know, to interpret your meaning through, yes, as you say, their expertise, because you're not a costume designer. Right. But there is that, that same, like, that that for the flavor that you want or for like the, the thing that you are trying to communicate in the screen, it's an act of communication. It is like an act of sort of a, a translation that is happening um, in, in all of these different um, departments and stuff. Um, but the other thing that I, like, the thing that I'm reminded of actually, which it, it's an interesting instinct to get away from basically um, that the first time Oh, this is the first time. Well, I had this wonderful experience, essentially, of writing a very, very short script for um, uh, for for an audio uh, performance, um, where I wrote the thing. Um, uh, I was going to. I was working with a director uh, with uh, with Jordana Williams, uh, who was going to produce this small clip. It was for it was for a competition of some kind, I think. Um, so. I got to be in the room while she was directing an actor to read the lines. Oh, that's always an instructive experience. The first time you see it, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's amazing. First of all, I realized that it made me so uncomfortable and uncomfortable in a way that like, that, that was good. But it, I mean, I'd, I'd written a very disturbing script and I found myself just wanting to like crawl backwards away from it <laughs> as it was performed. I was like, Oh God, no, I, I don't actually, I would not watch this thing that I have written or listened to as it were. Um, but, um, but it was very affecting. But the thing that I, I was fascinated by was at one point, um, Jordana turned to me and, um, uh, asked me like what I thought of a, of a, of a, like one way of performing this line and stuff. And my instinct was to attempt to perform the line. Oh no, no, no. Don't do that. Yeah, I know. It's horrible. It's like, I mean, that was my instinct. And like, I, I very quickly backed away from it when I realized this is, I am not an actor. <laughs> but, like, but it's also a faux pas. Yes. It, it's regard, it's regarded as bad form to literally tell an actor how you want them to read a line because you're you're taking away their own decision making precisely i i was a fool <laughs> i realized this like instantly <laughs> hey, oh, it was your first time how, how were you the, nobody gives you a list of rules when you walk in the room which they really should you know because i've done a lot of this stuff for video games and what have you as well and yeah it's nobody get, tells you these things when you walk in you only find them out by getting it wrong Right. And but this was the thing, like I had not realized up until that point that whenever Jordana was giving direction, she wasn't she wasn't saying, say the line more like this, the way that I'm saying it. She was saying, I want to hear more of this. I want to hear more of this, you know, um, and giving scope to the actor whose realm of expertise is different um, to do the thing. And and that's what I mean by like uh by like the screenplay as this kind of translation of a lot of different instincts and stuff i i don't i can't tell a costume designer what how to dress the character but i can tell them what i want to feel from it or like um like to 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 try and give again i'm I'm saying this not having actually spoken to a costume designer no no but i understand what you mean you you want to give them enough context from reading the character that they have the same sense as you of oh they dress kind in this kind of way exactly like this kind of person even Mm -hmm. if yeah you're not getting into the specifics of how many belt buckles they have or something exactly exactly i want to 
let's finish off with something really sort of like nuts and bolts. When you and Max were writing, when you when you were doing the book of this Lady Loser Tom, when you were writing together in that space, how what literally, how did you go about it? Was one of you sat at the keyboard while the other person paced around the room? Did you take turns at the keyboard? Did you write in order, out of order? Did you have an outline in place? How did it work? Okay, so I, I love this so much. Um, I, I will talk about this forever. Um, but what ha- so the way that we wrote it was we had a very, very macro outline. We had a sense of roughly five acts um, that we like, and, and the shape of the story that we wanted to tell, and how um, you know where, where its crisis was going to be, and that sort of thing. Um, and the shape of the writing was that we were both writing at the same time. Uh, Max on, uh, his, yeah, he, he hooked up like a, a very old timey keyboard with a lot of travel, um, up to, uh, either his laptop or iPad. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, and I had my extremely old, but not travely keyboard. Uh, I mean, I had, I had an actual ancient laptop with me in this gazebo with no internet. Uh, and we would be writing at the same time. One of us would write the letter and the other would write the situation in which the letter was being received. So we were writing, so that, and that's the way, for those of you who have not read the book, um, the way that the book is structured is there's always a scene in which one character is doing something that culminates in finding a letter and then there's the letter. And then there's the other character who wrote that letter. And then you swap characters. You're swapping around. Exactly. There are two characters, red and blue, um, and they start writing each other letters in this way while being on opposite sides of a war fought in time or all of reality. So so it opens with Red, uh, who is the character that Max wrote all of, uh, finding a letter. And while Max was writing that section, I was writing the letter written by Blue. So we would always discuss the situation in which the letter would be received, but we would not discuss the letter. We never, like, so the letter was always a surprise both to the person writing it and to the person receiving it. Like, I didn't know what I was going to be writing about letter-wise until I started writing it. And Max didn't know what he was going to have to be responding to until he read it. So the only problem with this setup is that Max writes almost exactly four times as fast as I do. <laughs> so, so picture, if you will, uh, on his extremely travelly keyboard, like you know, uh, while I, uh, with my you know, dense poetic prose line, am <laughs> sort of staring off into space, going doop 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 doop, uh, and so. For initially, for like basically the whole first act of the book, um, Max was often waiting around for me to finish my section, whether I was writing the letter or whether I was writing the other thing. And you'll notice also, I think, that red sections in the first part of the book are usually much longer than blues because Max writes a lot more than I do in the same amount of time. The beautiful thing that happened as we were writing was that Max started slowing down and I started speeding up to the point where we were finishing our sections at exactly the same time in a way that became uncanny and wonderful. Oh, fantastic. We would just, we'd finish at the same time. We'd look up, kind of lock eyes, go, really? Okay. And then swap laptops to read what we'd written and go, ah, this is amazing. And then swap them back 
and then keep going. Um, and it just like it, 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 when I say like it felt like fusion, really, it felt like choreography. It felt like a dance, you know, at that point. Um, it's genuinely one of the most beautiful uh, writing experiences I've, I've ever had in my life. Uh, and it was just so wonderful to 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 feel as we were writing it that our styles were moving towards each other as well as our paces and that we were kind of drawing on things that we were doing, which also is a thing that is happening to the characters as, as they are reading each other more and yeah. being affected by each other. So there was, uh, there was a lot of form following function there. Um, but we always like Max wrote all of red and I wrote all of blue. But did you revise each other's sections? So when we came time, when we came to revising it, uh, first we, um, we first we handed it off to our agent, um, and he gave us uh, notes about the story. But then, we, anytime we did revision, we were only doing it in our sections. So um, we would be trying to achieve the same goal by changing things in our respective sections. Uh, so if there was like, okay, we need to overhaul the beginning of it. Um, in order to make it more intelligible <laughs> to people uh, because there's a lot of onboarding in those first 40 pages or yeah. so. <laughs> um, so we, we also just revised in our own sections. Um, if we, if we, as we were going through the book, like caught things in each other's sections, like, Oh, there's a contradiction here that maybe needs to be addressed. We'd kind of flag it up as notes for each other, but, uh, but we still only really did our own edits in our own sections. Um, and we did this as well when Nava Wolf, uh, who was our editor at Saga, um, did her pass as as well. So Nava's actually the only person who edited, like, all of the book. Uh, well, so, so did Dongwon. Um, like, so oh, did our, right, our agent. Right, yeah, right. He, he did... Uh, but neither you nor Max did. No, exactly. Exactly. Which, may, which meant that, um, that it was such a pleasure to when I finally got to hold, you know, the finished book to actually just sit down and read it all the way through in a way that wasn't me just kind of dwelling on my sections. Actually, it wasn't even the finished book. It was, um, no, the first time I listened to the audiobook uh, was this revelation because, so the, the audiobook is read by two readers by um, uh, Cynthia Farrell, who reads for red and um, Emily Wu Zeller, who reads for blue. Um, and, listening to it made me able to like dive into Max's sections for the first time, essentially since we wrote the first draft, you know, like very, very few and far between were the times that I actually got to during the editing process, read the whole book over again, um, instead of just focusing on my sections. So listening to the audiobook was this really beautiful experience of just going, Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is the part that, I get to dwell in now instead of skip over in order to fix problems in mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what do you, when you come, when you sit down to write, whether it is, I mean, I know you do a lot of short stories, for example, but whether it is prose or whether it is poetry or, or even the screenwriting, what are the parts that you really enjoy writing? What do you look forward to? Yeah, it varies so much from project to project. Um, I think the thing that I most enjoy, and this, this may be because I, uh, I sort of have a, background of like online role-playing as well um the thing that i most look forward to is sort of being written by the character if that makes sense um there's like there's this uh getting getting to the point in any draft where 
I feel like writing has this kind of inevitability to it that is pulled out of deep feeling, essentially. I think I know what you mean. It's when you know the character so well mm-hmm. that, as you say, the actions and decisions feel inevitable. Yeah. And you just feel, you, that's what, you know, when people say, oh, the characters write themselves. Well, of course they don't literally, but I think, I always think that that's what we mean is that we've come to know them so well that, mm-hmm. you know, their, their actions and decisions and motivations appear plain to us. Yes. But it's also like, it, it's, it's not only a matter of like the, the appearance of them or the understanding of them. It's a matter of like the experience of them, of, of, of writing through this character, deep feeling that I am experiencing as I am writing, essentially. Um, so it is, and getting to that, I mean, some people will call this flow state or what have you, but that is definitely the thing that I think I most look forward to is and that kind of inevitability of just like feeling the things as much as um, understanding how they are going to happen and uh, and where they're going to go and stuff. In contrast, then, what are the parts that you dread coming to write? <laughs> this is, okay, two things here. Uh, I, especially so with Time War, both book-wise and um, uh, screenplay-wise, I have this real block about writing action. Um there's something which something which comes very easily to Max, I think. Uh, a lot of the time, I think that the, there's a metaphor that I um, have used elsewhere, and I can't remember where now, but that still feels very apt, is that I, I've often felt like my writing in its prose style and in kind of building its affect out of prose style has been like looking closely at the inside of a shell and, and kind of like looking at the lights on the knacker and stuff like that. Whereas the writing that I really admire and want to learn to do involves looking up at the beach and kind of looking around (laughs) and kind of, you know, building, building a sense of dimension and surrounding, which is so crucial to action, I think, is something that I find very counterintuitive. All right. Last question. What is the last book you read where the writing really impressed you? Actually, this works well. The literally the last book that I read, like, like I read it yesterday, is called Finna by Nino Cipri. And it's a novella from Tor.com. And it's actually quite relevant to this conversation uh, because as I was reading it, I was marveling at how clean and smooth the, the, the writing was. And I was reading it going, man, this would make a really fantastic screenplay. <laughs> and I got to the end of the book and the acknowledgements and saw that it in fact began life as a screenplay. And I was delighted by this. I felt very smug. I was like, aha, I did it. I noticed a thing. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, so good. And it's just like that, that smooth, gorgeous, cinematic basically writing style um it's it's very deftly paced it's very but it's also like it's got these wonderful moments of character insight um and like just things that will just knock you backwards essentially uh it feels so real um and it's so it's just really beautiful fantastic all right so amal where can people find you online for my sins, uh, they can find me on Twitter at Tithenai, uh, T-I-T-H-E-N-A-I. Um, and also on Substack, uh, I am amal.substack.com. Um, it's a newsletter, a slash blog, essentially, that you can sign up to uh, to get updates about 
various news things, but also where I'll periodically write essays and have things like Friday open threads and stuff for people to have discussions, trying to kind of merge the best of live journal that was uh, with the current social media moment. Um, and also I have a website, uh, amanalmahtar.com, just my name, all one word, uh, .com. All right. Well, at this point, I normally ask guests to uh, name a work of theirs that for listeners to check out. But in this case, I'm just going to go ahead and tell everybody that they should go out and get a copy of This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amala Max Gladstone, because it is brilliant and poetic and all the things that we've just talked about. Thank you so much. Amal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. This has been really enjoyable. Thanks. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, remember you can become a Patreon supporter. Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, uh, along with other bonus features. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write. Remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.